Hi, it's Ariana. Hi, it's Greg. As a listener to Climate One, we know you care about how climate disruption is affecting all of us now and into the future. I'm guessing you already do several things in the spirit of climate action. Here's another one: giving a donation to us to continue bringing you shows about the causes and solutions to the climate crisis. You can do that at climateone.org/donate. We offer all our podcasts and radio shows for free, but it takes time, effort, and resources to produce new episodes every week. When you give, you help us pay for the talented staff, equipment, and materials we need to make the show. And you'll join a group of other dedicated funders and community supporters who keep Climate One on the air. If you're inspired by the guests and conversations we curate, please consider making a gift today at climateone.org/donate. Thank you for your support and thanks for listening. How will we power our future? Can we create a healthy and clean economy? Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is at the forefront of the global debate about energy, economy, and the environment. Bringing together the brightest and most provocative leaders of our time, Climate One is the place where big ideas get heard. With thoughtful and insightful discussions on policy, business, science, and culture, Climate One founder Greg Dalton gets to the heart of the matter. It's our future. It's time to come together. Welcome to Climate One, a conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment. To understand any of them, you have to understand them all. I'm Greg Dalton. Today, we're discussing smart growth in the Bay Area in an era of rising population and rising tides. Another million people are projected to move to the region in coming decades, bringing new demand for housing and jobs. At the same time, climate reality suggests the usual ways of growing won't serve us well in the future. Due to pressures to reduce greenhouse gas emissions and the need to brace for severe weather. Over the next hour, we will look at building a prosperous and resilient Bay Area with our live audience at the Commonwealth Club in San Francisco. We're pleased to have with us three people actively shaping the region's future. Alex Marin Jr. is general manager at Bishop Ranch, which is owned by the Sunset Development Company. Carl Shannon is senior managing director at Tishman Spire, a developer of urban offices and condominiums. And Gabe Metcalf is executive director of SPUR, a nonprofit urban planning organization. Please welcome them to Climate One. All right. Uh, thank you all for coming. I'd like to talk a little bit before we get into uh, development and the, the future of a smart growth in the Bay Area, how you came to development and, and think and sustainable development in particular. So let's talk, start with you, Carl Shannon. Sure. I mean, at Tishman Spire, we really want to play and develop in cities with high barriers to entry, the 24-7 cities that we really see as being the future on the planet. And to take that role seriously, to be involved in those communities, um, doing that from a thoughtful and sustainable perspective is critical to us. Uh, and so that commitment runs through our culture, and each of us, I run the Bay Area for Tishman Spire, each of us around the world um, approaches that from an individual perspective, but it's throughout the firm's culture. Gabe Metcalf, you've been doing and thinking about this a very long time. Was it? I don't, uh, when did you first come to really think about sustainable development? Well, I, I come to this uh, in two ways. Um, first is uh, the simple fact that I love cities. Um, I uh, the the energy and the diversity and the excitement and and the the mix of all these people doing these crazy things. You'll never even know a tiny fraction of. So I love cities, and that's the happy way I came to this. But I also came to this from, I think, uh, what 
uh, is a less happy uh, angle. And, and that's a, in, in my generation, we know that the problem of our time is climate change. And if we continue to uh, build this country the way we have in a suburban format, uh, there will be so much carbon uh, in the atmosphere from uh, that way of life that uh, the seas will rise and there will not be a San Francisco or a New York or a Los Angeles or a Seattle or a Shanghai or a London or a Cairo. The cities of the world on the coasts are facing an existential threat that um, uh, we are utterly unprepared to deal with. And, and so um, there is a happy side to this. There's also an apocalyptic side to how I come to this. And we'll get to both of those. It's why we're doing this program, to talk about how cities are part of the problem and can be part of the solution. Alex Marin, you grew up in the land business, third generation. How did you come to think about sustainability and land development? Uh, well, we've been a, a suburban developer since the early 50s, and uh, in all our communities we've tried to mitigate some of the you – know, we're not building in cities, but we've tried to mitigate some of the issues uh, by creating uh, locations with good land planning, uh, a lot of sustainable initiatives, uh, uh, transit-oriented, uh, and other things to have uh, a really high-quality location which can mitigate some of the issues that most uh, suburban locations suffer from. And so I think you know, that's been a, a key element in all our developments. So let's think about the Bay Area looking out. Uh, a million people, 600,000 homes. How is that going to happen? How is the Bay Area going to grow in a climate-smart way so that those homes both are protected from what we know that's coming in terms of climate change and don't make the problem worse? Carl Shannon? Look, from our perspective, I think it's about trying to build those homes you know, our focus as a developer, I think, is more in trying to deal with the cause of the problem and limiting the carbon more than it is the how to deal with the symptom. Um, and for us, that's really about building housing and jobs near each other and near transit. That if we can build... 650 homes at the infinity in downtown San Francisco, that's 650 homes that aren't built in Mountain Home or Antioch or Novato, and we don't have those people driving in their cars coming into the city. They're literally walking from the infinity to their jobs in downtown. So while it is challenging economically, putting housing and jobs near each other and creating really vibrant 24-7 communities, I think is, from a developer's perspective, one of the most important things we can do. And we are, you know, big believers in what is going on in San Francisco. And I think while San Francisco is fairly unique, the energy of what is happening today in San Francisco is remarkable from my perspective. And let's talk about that. Around the Transbay Terminal, there's supposed to be, what, 20,000 new homes. There's going to be maybe high-speed rail, maybe not, but there's going to be some transit infrastructure. Uh, is that sort of the thing that you think ought to, more cities ought to do? Yeah, I, I think that you have a very wonderful mix coming together, and partly it's about the transit terminal itself, Partly it's about a relatively rich transit environment to start with, with Barton Muni um, already here. Um, and 
you're, you have a whole generation of people today in their 20s and 30s, people who go to the best colleges in the country, and rather than saying, okay, I'm going to take the best job I can, they pick where they want to live. And San Francisco has the right chemistry of the right neighborhoods and the right feeling, and it's a progressive city, and it's an environmentally sensitive city, and you have people coming to live in San Francisco as sort of their primary decision. And then they find the best job that they can. And some of those people, yes, are getting on the Google bus and driving down to Mountain View every day, and they're getting on the Apple bus and going down to Cupertino every day. But increasingly, I think you see those people, and if they have a choice, once they've, they've, they've come here and they're working for Google or Apple, um, and their roommate or their neighbor or somebody they have coffee with says, you should come work for Dropbox or you should come work for Salesforce, you're seeing in a way that we've never seen before in San Francisco, these tech companies really take root here, not because they like the political climate, not because the taxes are low and it's an easy place to do business, but because they want and need access to those employees. Um, and if you look at the sort of P&L statement of a tech company, getting the right employees is much more important than the taxes or the rent that you're paying. And so I think you see people, you see companies coming into San Francisco. I mean, our leasing guy will get calls from brokers with a 650 or 408 area code once a week with, I've got a 50,000 square foot requirement that didn't exist in San Francisco that wants to come look. And they're doing that because they want the employees. And I think that chemistry, which Ed Lee has done a lot to try and reinforce, is very special, and we are really creating a great 24-7 city here. Gabe Metcalf, do you agree? Sounds like San Francisco is doing a lot of things right. Or just getting lucky. Both. But I think... Uh I think San Francisco is doing a lot of things right. We got we got lucky that Silicon Valley grew up just to our south and sort of colonized the city's economy and uh, saved our bacon. But um, I think the growth the growth needs to be really seen as an opportunity. I mean, the the world's population is growing from six billion or so today to nine or ten billion, but it's very unevenly spread. Um, Europe is not growing. Japan is not growing. The regions of the United States that are growing have the opportunity to take all that growth and, and we can rebuild our communities, both, both our cities and our suburbs, so that they become more walkable, so that they are organized into nodes where transit can serve them. This growth provides us with the opportunity to retrofit the past mistakes we've made, and I think San Francisco right now is doing a really good job of that. But San Francisco can't do it alone. Let's talk about some of the other regions where if there's going to be a million people, maybe, what, 100,000 can – there's 100,000 units in the pipeline supposedly in San Francisco. What about the rest of the Bay Area and that maybe can't do things like San Francisco or don't want to? Uh, Alex Marin, some people want to live out in Danville, East Bay, et cetera. They don't want that urban lifestyle. Yeah, and I, and I think it's something that's important to, to point out is that the, 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 the reason for that – demand to go out there isn't just about the cost of the houses. It's about the cost of schools. Um, you know, if you live in the city and you have the job that Carl was describing, you probably want your kids to go to private school, and that's just not tenable in the city. 
Uh, if you move out to the suburbs, there's better schools and there's an opportunity for better public schools, and there's an opportunity to to take advantage of that. Um, and so we really feel that that uh, creating nodes in the suburbs with, with substantial infill development, retrofitting suburbia, as you said, um, you know, where you can create high density in the suburbs with specific nodes where there's jobs and houses, and you can get that convergence and reduce the amount of trips. And vehicles is an important uh, thing to, to, to think about. Um, Are there some places where that's happening now? Is, is If we look at suburbia, Gabe Metcalf, is there a place where you would say that this is the direction that retrofitting suburbia might go? Well, I think Bishop Ranch is a really interesting example um, of a, a single landowner trying to think it through at scale. I also think that um, the city of San Jose, which you all should know is the biggest city in the Bay Area, um, more than a million people, very suburban in its pattern, and it, it modeled itself on Los Angeles for many decades and, and annexed land, is trying to um, trying to move at least some of its neighborhoods into a much more urban direction. Um, the North San Jose, where a lot of the tech companies are, is trying to kind of reinvent a new, a new uh, form that can be better than the suburban office park. Um, downtown San Jose is trying to grow as much as it can. Um, so I think there are examples here in the Bay Area. So, but government can only do so much. And there's, uh, there's Santana Row down there, which is one area that people kind of mention as, as a model of a place where people can kind of live and work. Uh, Carl Shannon, what do you see as the obstacles uh, for that kind of development in, in San Jose? Is it the, on the demand side or is it the supply side? Why isn't San Jose, can they become like San Francisco, get that urban mix you're talking about? Um, I think San Jose is trying very hard, and I think the redevelopment agency in San Jose got a lot of energy in downtown. Um, the The economics and the geography are different than they are in San Francisco. Um, one of the challenges from an office standpoint, from a development standpoint, is that in downtown – um, parking is below grade or in structured parking that is expensive to build and um, you are competing with office tenants on North First Street where the parking is in a surface parking lot. And the tenant will, there's an economic advantage. It's cheaper to be or has been cheaper to be in that product in um, up off of North First Street in the so-called Golden Triangle than to be downtown. Um, so you have to overcome that cost increment to draw the tenants downtown. And Adobe has been a great corporate citizen in leading the way and has built a great corporate campus, um, but you don't have the kind of critical mass that you have in San Francisco. So it continues to need very significant municipal help and support to continue. And, and really, in this last cycle, was sort of the first time we built high-rise attached housing in downtown San Jose. It really didn't exist 10 years ago. And in the 2006 to 2008 time frame, we finally built some attached housing in downtown San Jose. It didn't do terribly well, but it's there, and you have residents, and it's beginning to take off. So I, I think it is actually a good model of how you can um, uh, uh, sort of densify in, in an environment. Um, there are places where there is the economic demand, but there's not the political will. 
right? And so you look at something like downtown Palo Alto. If we could build a 15-story attached condominium project on University Avenue in downtown Palo Alto, we could sell that out overnight. Um, but there's no political will in some of these smaller municipalities to see that kind of densification. I mean, Palo Alto has that living, thriving downtown that people want. It has office rents that are, quite frankly, some of the highest in the entire Bay Area and some of the highest values for um, the buildings in downtown Palo Alto. So economically, the engine is there. But you have to find the right balance of the economic desire and the um, political will. And Gabe Metcalf, you have to presume that people in Palo Alto get climate change, they get the carbon imperative, and they'd like to solve the problem, just not in their backyard. People are not willing to make some personal trade-offs for the common good. Yeah, I don't think they do get it, because I just can't believe, I just can't believe if people understood the impacts of, of their actions, they would be making this choice that will be so murderous on future populations, that, that the impact of allowing someone else to live in an apartment building, not even yourself having to live in it, but allowing it to be permitted so that other people could live there, that that is too great, that they won't... I, I, just, I just have to believe that people, that human nature is better than that, that if they understood the impact of denying that, they would change their mind. And they're not the only ones. There's other uh, areas where... City municipalities have opposed this uh, denser housing. Uh, Peter Calthorpe was here and talked about how there were plans for Alameda to have some attached housing, etc. And people uh, rejected that because of what class, race. It's like, oh, we don't want that because of the, the people it's going to bring into our area. What's going on there? You tell me. <laughs> there is somehow an idea in uh, in in a lot of uh, the Bay Area that um, you should not have to be inconvenienced by even seeing a new building within your line of sight. That that is too much to ask for the sake of fighting climate change. And I, I honestly, I, I know they're not Republicans. There's hardly any Republicans in the, in the Bay Area, right? Um, no. Sunset so Park. I don't know San, what it is. Western San Francisco. They want to keep that residential, so part of its character, neighborhood character, identity, and a little bit of we got in here first and closed the door after us. Yeah. Should we just, I, I, Carl Shannon? I, I do think that we see, maybe I'm the positive guy in the room, um, that, that demographically there is a real shift. And you look at sort of the development patterns in the period following the Second World War in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, where where the cities emptied out and people went out to the the bucolic suburban lifestyle and they got these nice homes and Alex's grandfather built a lot of homes and and then we had the shopping centers and the businesses follow them to the suburbs. You're really seeing the people, the 20 and 30-somethings, say that, no, I want to be in that richer urban environment. And I get that there are a lot of political issues, particularly in these smaller suburban municipalities. But I think the demographics are changing. The attitudes are changing. There is a new generation that is much more inclined to stay in an urban environment, to raise families in an urban environment. And there are issues with that, schooling issues. Gabe and I both know that on a personal front, very real. 
Um, but um, I am optimistic that as you roll the clock forward and the people who are 20 and 30 years old today grow up and have children and take leadership roles in society, that they will do that from a much more environmentally sensitive, sustainable direction. And one area that's, that's manifesting is, is vehicles, cars. We grew up sort of aspiring to, our car was a means of, of liberation, getting a car, that independence. These days, uh, people have their, their smartphone, that's their vehicle for independence. They don't, uh, lust after cars, uh, the way that previous generations did. And, and they look at mobility as a service rather than some metal to own. Uh, and so Gabe Metcalf, you know, how does car sharing and, and vehicle miles traveled fitting into this? Cause that's a big part of the greenhouse gas emissions of an urban Area. Right. So here in the Bay Area, the number I use, 40% of our emissions are from driving. Um, if you look at the, the emissions from the manufacturing of the cars, it's, it's bigger in terms of each of our personal carbon footprints. So the whole game in a place like the Bay Area is reducing the amount that people drive. And I tend to think that you can't really judge people's personal trip decisions. People do what is most convenient and you really have to approach this from the land use side. You have to retrofit the land uses to make it that it's really convenient to uh, bike or walk or take the train. But I do think that um, we are experiencing a wave of innovation that deals with the kind of medium density of the Bay Area, um, at least you know as parts of it. We're not New York. We're not we're not a European city. Um, we have transit, but it's very spotty. But it's sort of too crowded to drive easily. So we have that we're kind of at this awkward in-between density. And so I think city car share is, is probably the most important, but um, the Google buses are getting a, uh, a drive alone rate to a suburban campus in the middle of Mountain View that is essentially the same as the drive alone rate to downtown San Francisco. Um, and it's extraordinary. I think this, um, what they would call dynamic ride sharing with Uber and Lyft and sidecar is really exciting as well. And I think uh, there's probably, we probably have just scratched the surface of what we're going to be able to do there. Well, one of the things that's happening in, in real estate that I think plays into what you're talking about, in commercial real estate, in office buildings, the densities at which tenants are occupying space are being pushed to much higher densities. You know, 15 years ago, you would plan an office building where you would have three 3.5 people per thousand. Per thousand square feet. Per thousand square feet. You now see today tech tenants pushing that number to seven, eight, nine, in some cases as high as 10 people per thousand square feet. If you provide that office space in North Bayshore in Mountain View, you have a parking ratio in your surface parking lot that maybe is four per thousand, is probably 3.5 per thousand. You can't get the people there in cars, right? If you do it in downtown San Francisco and you put people in at seven, eight per thousand and they come on BART, they come on Muni, you're making that happen. It's a much better fit for the tenants. The people who are in, the tenants who are in these traditional suburban environments are having to think outside the box they're having to do the buses. Google is a huge proponent of the electrification of Caltrain. And part of the reason they want to do that is to improve the service on Caltrain because they know that's critical to bringing people to North Bayshore. 
We also see from a value standpoint, we built a building in downtown Mountain View in um, started in 2000, delivered in 2002. When we did, being walking distance from the Caltrain was kind of a nice to have. It was a little bit of a benefit. It was a it was a good thing, but it didn't differentiate the rate between being on Castro Street, walking distance from the train station, and being off a of shoreline in North Bay Shore. Today, there is a real difference in these peninsula communities between the rent for for office space that's walking distance from the train station than there is something that's not. In large part because you have these people who live in San Francisco and take the train down, and if they take the train down and walk to their job, that's great. If they take the train down and then they need to wait for a jitney to pick them up, it's a different thing. So I think you're seeing it translate into rent and into value, which will incent the development community to do the right thing. So we're seeing culture and policy. One thing that uh, policy has done in San Francisco is to try to put a squeeze on parking and residential commercial development. Sometimes developers squeal at that, saying that you're, you're killing us. But is that ultimately a not-so-bad thing, Carl Shannon, to have some constraints on parking so that uh, it seems like the market is going in this direction toward less vehicle-based? Yeah, I mean, San Francisco has been in transit first city since, what, 1987, 88? 70. Uh, Seven, well, okay, but the, the, the real parking regulations uh, came into place. Um, look, for, from a market standpoint, if you talk to a condominium buyer or an office tenant, they always want as much parking as you can give them. Um, so we need to find the right balance, but we are big supporters in general of what the city is trying to do from a transit-first policy. We just need to marry that with the market reality of providing the space and the units to people who will buy them. Um, but the short answer is yes, we're very supportive of what the city's trying to do. Okay, Metcalf? On, on parking? Yeah, stro- yeah, parking, yeah, right, as a constraint yeah, to drive. Yeah, my my tendency is to think if you get the land uses right, so there there's a mix of uses, it's really high density, really walkable, and you get the transit, then you don't really have to worry about the parking. You, you can kind of, if you build a lot of parking, it sort of is self-correcting because the streets just get completely congested and people stop driving for that reason. And I think you really want to focus on on making the sidewalks nice, making the ground floors of the buildings nice, building at really high densities, and then you want to focus on the transit piece. And how about electric cars? Does it matter what kind of cars people drive? Obviously, gasoline is a big part of greenhouse gas emissions. Depends. Here in the Bay Area, our electricity is fairly clean, coming from hydro, some geothermal, increasingly solar. Uh, is, 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 can we keep the car if they're cleaner cars, Gabe Metcalf? Or has we got to... Well, a lot of the carbon impact of a car is in the manufacturing of the car rather than the driving of the car. So... If you move toward cleaner cars, you're dealing with part of the problem. There's also the carbon impact of building all the roads. There's also the impact on walkability of spreading the destinations farther apart to accommodate all the cars. So absolutely, we should push for cleaner cars, but it is a mistake to think that that solves the problem. Well, electric cars can't go very far, so you might solve it that way. Range anxiety kind of keeps them, keeps them <laughs> close, right? Yeah. I can't go more than 100 miles uh, in, in my Nissan Leaf. The, uh, let's talk about Oakland a little bit. You know, Oakland is an area where they, uh, Mayor Brown wanted 10,000 new units uh, as an example of a place where a lot of people didn't want to live before. Now there's a lot of new buildings over there. Uh, Gabe Metcalf, has that been a success? Yeah, I think downtown Oakland um, is one of the most 
exciting um, things happening and planning in the Bay Area. And um, I think the analogy between Manhattan and Brooklyn basically works in some ways. The, that that uh, Oakland is the Brooklyn to to uh, San Francisco's Manhattan. And I think um, there uh, these days when you are a young person out of college and you move to the Bay Area to make a go at things, you are probably going to live in Oakland because the because San Francisco <clears throat> is so hyper-gentrified. Most people can't afford to live in it anymore. So I think that um, Oakland has incredible potential. 10,000 units was a good start. I would view that as a priming of the pump. There should be 100,000 uh, new units in greater downtown Oakland. There is easily the room for that, um, probably there, a lot more. Is there the, the demand for that? There is, um, there is not, and that is the paradox, at least today. Um, and I, th- I, I think this is largely because of public safety concerns. The rents that uh, people are willing to pay in Oakland are not, as of this second, they're not high enough to cover the cost of building new buildings. That will change. As San Francisco gets uh, displaces more and more people to Oakland, rents will go up and new apartments will begin to be financially viable. And I think the um, the kind of culture of Oakland is such a strong draw that um, the fundamentals are right. It's got it's it's closer to downtown San Francisco than San Francisco is to downtown San Francisco, and. <laughs> It's, uh, I think Oakland is going to be a big part of the solution. Alex Mayer, would you agree? Do you think about Oakland? I mean, you're over there in the East Bay. You live in the East Bay. Would you see, uh, what do you see as the demand side for, for housing in Oakland? I mean, I think the, the story of places like Oakland and everywhere outside the city is, is the same, that the rents in the city go up um, due to all the demand drivers that have been spoken about. And, uh, and I think Oakland's a great alternative. There's a lot of uh, opportunities for infill. Um, but, you know, I think more broadly, touching on the last uh, points, it's great that the city can have these low par- these parking requirements. It's great that they can have the transportation. They pump $4 billion into the Transbay Terminal, and, you know, there's less than 10% of that being spent in the suburban areas. But there is a cost reality. Uh, you know, whether it's you're talking about schools or you're talking about office rents, there's a cost reality that a lot of companies and a lot of families can't live in the city. And, you know, maybe we're the big, bad, you know, suburban developers here. But that's the reality that we've lived with and we've, we've built to over the years. And I think that um, that's something that we have to face and we have to, we have to think about nodes in the suburbs, you know, whether, you know, uh, you create a, a ferry system and you develop, you know, the Mare Islands, the Alamedas, Treasure Islands, Hunters Points, and uh, add a new level of transportation, um, or however you do it, adding, you know, 10 million-plus uh, foot locations in suburban locations like ours and like Walnut Creek and others is important, and Oakland certainly uh, a prime place for that. So on suburban development, uh, your family started Bishop Branch what, back to the 70s. As you look at the next 30 years, do you think that the future will be more Bishop Branches, more suburban, de- suburban developments, or do you agree that there will be more uh, opportunity, more necessity for developing in areas that have already had some development? I think that really depends on the, the local governments. Uh, you know, recently we had some, some uh, uh, debate in Danville about the ABAG requirements for high-density housing in Danville. ABAG is the Association of Bay Area Governments. Yeah. And so, they, you know, there's people that, that want to develop 35, 40 density units per acre in Danville, which relatively is not that high, but for Danville is high. And, and they 
the, the people are outraged because they made that decision way back when to move to the suburbs to, for their family, for schools, and they want to protect that. They're scared of the attached housing. And I think, you know, if we can get beyond that and, and realize the necessity for affordable housing in the suburbs and density, uh, that we can really, we can create a good, uh, a, a good sustainable solution for those who can't pay the prices in the city. Let's just talk briefly a little bit about that process because there is a process where the, the region decides how many housing uh, units should be built and then kind of tries to have uh, jurisdictions or counties and municipalities do that and then there's some real tension there because they don't want to do it or they want it to happen somewhere else. Well, we can't build that many, Gabe Metcalf. You know, is that process working? How does that work? Well, up till now, um, in California, the Every city can do what it wants in terms of land use. Sure seems and, that way. Yeah. And the guidance, the guidance from the region or from the state is non-binding guidance. Um, Oregon went a very different path where they had a, they passed a state growth management law in the early 70s and they don't, they don't ask cities, um, whether they want to accommodate growth or not. They assign numbers to them that they are required to meet and or what what's the consequence of missing them um i believe there are a whole series of consequences but but ultimately um it's tell not ultimately you lose your local land use authority okay Um, and there are a couple other examples in the country of of that where where states are giving direction to regions and regions are giving direction to cities but um We'd, that that hasn't happened anywhere in California, and there's no sign that it's going to. Carl Shannon, how do you look at the East Bay and, and, and uh, Oakland as a, as a potential market for uh, for capital investment? Gabe was talking about there, there there could be some more there, but would you invest in Oakland? Uh, we have invested in the past in the East Bay and continue to feel good about the East Bay. I mean the. The backbone that's driving the Bay Area right now is sort of this arc from downtown San Francisco to Santa Clara up and down the peninsula because that is where the tech jobs are. Um, but um, the East Bay is very transit rich. I mean, if you took somebody who'd never been here before and showed them a BART map, you know, the downtown of the Bay Area on the BART map is in downtown Oakland. It's not in downtown San Francisco. Um, so it's, it's very transit rich. And from an affordable housing standpoint, you know, if you're Safeway or GE and you want to put a lot of people in the Bay Area and and tap into the Bay Area labor pool, but you want them to have a reasonable commute from a typical suburban um, housing stock, being in San Ramon or being in Pleasanton, Dublin, makes a tremendous amount of sense for some of these corporate users. It's, it's a different equation than for the technology companies who are trying to get to the people who are living in downtown San Francisco. Um, but, yes, no, we believe in the East Bay, and I think um, that there, there are good logic for putting money to work there. The Tri-Valley area out in Dublin, et cetera, they're trying to lure those jobs and investment from Silicon Valley because of the escalating costs. And I'd like to talk a little bit about whether that might be part of this, this another node where they become a, a, a satellite of, of Silicon Valley where people can have more affordable uh, uh, housing out there. That, that there's, uh, there's Lawrence Livermore Lab, which is trying to turn itself into sort of a tech hub and open its doors and be a center of innovation and technology. Is that something that will get off the ground or is that wishful thinking 
by some dreamy planners who look lustily after Silicon Valley? Uh, I think it's a little bit of both. Um, I think the real appeal um, in the East Bay is um, is the access to housing and the access to transit. So if you are Safeway or Chevron or somebody who wants to be in the Bay Area as a whole doesn't need to have access to the engineering talent that is in Sunnyvale and Santa Clara. Um, the Tri-Valley is an incredibly desirable place to be. And Alex's father, grandfather, and Alex have built a great physical environment at Bishop Ranch and in other projects out there um, that is very appealing to the sort of corporate America element of the Bay Area economy. But it's still sprawl, Gabe Metcalf. I mean, it might, you might take BART out there, but once you get there, you need a car. Well, you do right now. And I think that's what's important is we have the opportunity over the next generation to retrofit urbanity into places that have not had it. And, and so um, do I think we should be building on green fields that have never had development? No, I, I think we can... Just stop. We don't have to do that ever again. But rebuilding places that were developed in a car-dependent way to make them walkable seems like a very important part of the of the work ahead of us. That's, your, your mic fell down. Let me just tell you what. Yeah, there you go. Thanks. Um, if you just I, 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 sure, Alex, there? we we uh, you know when you do get to San Ramon, you, you you actually don't need a car. You can take an express bus from Van Ness straight there. And you can use a shared bike to go down to Whole Foods for, for, for lunch if you need to. I mean, there's easy ways. Walnut Creek's done a lot of the same thing. There's easy ways to, to make that to make that work uh, in a suburban location. So the perception still is suburbia equals car, that you really need to, need to have that We do like there. our cars. <laughs> uh, if you're just joining us uh, at Climate One today, we're talking about smart growth in the Bay Area with Alex Marin, Jr., General, Mon- General Manager of Bishop Branch, Carl Shannon, Senior Managing Director at Tishman Spire, and Gabe Metcalf, Executive Director at Spur. I'm Greg Dalton. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the other side of climate change, which is preparing for the impacts that are coming our way uh, if we don't get this uh, cut greenhouse gas emissions, which... Uh, is happening slowly in the United States, but not so much around the world. So um, how can the Bay Area grow in a way that we're not putting more housing, more buildings at risk, Carl Shannon, uh, for sea level rise and the other things that scientists say are coming our way? It's a challenging question, and I think it's a question that the development community is only beginning to think about. Um, and I think we want to partner with the public officials and the planning officials and people like Gabe's organization to try and think through these issues. Um, you know, we spend a lot more time, honestly, thinking about sustainability from a, uh, in terms of the materials we use and the tr- transit patterns and um, sustainability vis-a-vis seismic issues uh, and have not really wrestled to the ground yet how to deal with um, sea level change. Gabe Metcalf, uh, San Francisco the last decades has developed Mission Bay, put billions of dollars of infrastructure, buildings, new university, and yet that is in a flood zone that the maps from uh, various government agencies say will be you know, underwater in a period of time. Is anyone thinking about that down there? Well, this is a tough, this is a tough issue. Mission Bay will be underwater 
but so will downtown San Francisco. And the the tragedy I think of of the Bay Area is we have this we have this beautiful pattern of mostly concentrating the development in the ring around the bay and leaving the hills green, leaving them undeveloped. And it's it's the Marin Headlands or it's the East Bay Parks or it's the San Mateo Hills. And that is our that's our form. The problem is the place where we have built this beautiful city that is increasingly connected, increasingly diverse, is going to be flooded. And I think the question I don't have the answer to is how far out is it reasonable for us to be uh, thinking about? The, the sea level rise estimates always stop at the year 2100. And I think the question we all have to begin grappling with is, do we want to be building things today that will be usable after that? How far out do we think we want to be making decisions for? The latest science says that the amount of carbon already in the atmosphere, the amount of warming that has already uh, occurred in the oceans, has committed us to 50 feet of sea level rise. So if we stopped driving today all over the world through some dictatorial power, we would still be dealing with 50 feet of sea level rise. Now, that's over a couple hundred years, hopefully, so they think. Um, and the problem is it looks like we're not going to stop driving. It looks like it's going to keep going past 50 feet. And so I think we have to begin to have a conversation about, about how many generations out can we, uh, can we get ourselves to care about. People used to think, let's uh, fix, um, we'll get, give you this so you can, uh, yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Um, before Hurricane Sandy, people thought they had a few decades to think about this. And then Sandy brought a 13-foot storm surge to Manhattan, affected some Tishman Spire properties. Uh, and people think that, whoa, okay, this is sooner and faster and um, so it's really here and now. So, Carl Shannon, I mean, is this really sinking in for, I mean, how did, what was the Sandy impact on your industry and people thinking, okay, wow, maybe this is something we got to think about sooner? I, I think it is, it is a wake-up call to our industry. I think we are beginning to grapple with it. It is not a simple thing as a is an organization that owns a discrete collection of individual buildings to say, okay, this is the sort of, global or broader solution to the problem. But I think there is an increased awareness and increased willingness to deal with the issue. You have some buildings on the drawing boards being built in San Francisco. Are you going to kind of put the generators up, take them out of the basement, uh, do some things like that just to say, okay? I think there is a backdrop of awareness that goes through what we're doing from a planning standpoint. I don't want to overplay that, but yes. Gabe Metcalf, uh, you know, again, thinking about uh, the scale here. So what I heard you say is that we maybe we're going to end up building on the pretty uh, ridge tops that we've preserved, and then the w- water along the bay will be the parks and wetlands that will cushion us from uh, the rising sea. It will flip. Well, that's not, that, that's not what anybody's thinking about right now. Um, maybe that's the right idea. You know, the, the thing that we have to understand every coastal city on the earth is going to be facing the same challenge. And there's going to be a lot of uh, seawalls built, dikes, flood barriers of all kinds. 
The thing is, those only are going to work up to a certain point. And then the seas will rise past that point. So they buy us time. What they buy us time to do is the question is, is are we relocating to completely other places like the Maldives? Um, or are we trying to gradually transfer the urban footprint toward higher elevations? Um, and I don't know the answer yet. I, I, don't, I think this is the conversation it's time for us to start having. And it, some things are already happening in the South Bay with the Army Corps of Engineers. We're starting to do some work. The South Bay is, I think, most vulnerable to this sort of thing because it's below sea level. It's sinking. I've ridden my bike along some of the dirt berms down there. You think you know, just see what's between the bay and some of those corporate campuses down there. It's really low uh, low and, and thin. We had John Englander, who was a, uh author, wrote a book called High Tide on Main Street, was here earlier this week, and he had people come to him and, in uh, Miami at cocktail parties when he told them he was writing a book about sea level rise and they said, if I sell in 10 years, will I be okay? So it all comes down to the time scale. People think, like, you might recognize this as coming, but you think, well, my grandkids shouldn't, you know, shouldn't live here, but I'm okay during, during my, my, my lifetime. I'd like to get your thought about the, the time scale here in terms of how quickly this could happen. Well, I think that's that's why this is such a challenge for us. Humans aren't very good at thinking this far out, and um, that is that's the special nature of this problem. The things we are doing today, the things we have been doing, are creating a problem that cannot be escaped in the future, and uh, and yet life goes on. Valencia Street is hopping. Downtown San Francisco is hopping. We're in an amazing time right here. And so that, that paradox, it's, it's, like, it's like Weimar Germany in 1929 and, and the, 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 the amazing flowering of, 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 the, of, the, of the socialist Jewish culture in Berlin, except that we know what lies ahead in the future. We're going to have invite your participation, uh, invite you to help cheer us up a little bit here. So, um, <laughs> please, something. Uh, so, uh, we're going to put a microphone here and invite you to uh, please walk around that side, that door. The line starts with our producer, Jane Ann, right there. And uh, invite your participation with one one-part question about any of these topics that... Uh, that we're presenting today. And so this is often one of the most uh, interactive and vibrant parts of the conversation. I encourage you to come on up. And while you're doing that, um, let's talk a little bit about the um, whether ferries could be part of this solution. You know, we've talked a little bit about transportation. Alex, your dad is a fan of, of ferries to San Francisco, ferries around the bay. Um, I'd like to get, you know, is that something we don't have now? They could be solve some of the congestion problems. A lot of the great cities in the world on the water have them. Uh, Alex, Marin, do you have any thoughts on ferries? Yeah, I, mean, I think that there's big cost issues with ferries, and I think that's sunk a lot of ferry initiatives in different places over time, but the ability to to uh, provide a new you know a new vehicle that's not on the roads and a whole new uh, opportunity to, to commute, uh, provided that it's from a sustainable suburban node to a urban node uh, where there's density and you don't have to then get in a car, I think is a is a great alternative. And it certainly would help us, you know, if there's something happens to a bridge, get the firefighters into the city, yeah. that sort of thing. Um, Gabe Metcalf, ferries, is that part of the yeah, uh, barrier sure. future? Sure. Yeah. The, uh, why aren't they happening? They're not happening mainly because the land uses are wrong. That that 
the ferry building in San Francisco is an example of where it works. You have a lot of, you have all these jobs that you can walk to. But the other side, uh, the shoreline is not densely built up. And so getting people to the ferries is a problem. Now, I think the only way to solve that is big parking garages um, that people can drive to. And I suspect we'll see some of that over time. And I think it's, I think it's a part of the solution. Well, certainly the, the area there at San Quentin where the Marine Country Mart is, that could be, you know, there could be ten times what is there now. Mm-hmm. Uh, it would be a great location. Uh, take a ferry to San Quentin. Yeah, so the, the, um, Lark's, Lark's one, one way, Lark's one way ticket. The, the, uh, um, <clears throat> but they'd have to, we'd, you know, here we are talking about developing the waterfront more. We have to do it in a smart way that we're going to end up building these things on some pretty, pretty higher expandable piers. Let's have our audience question. Yes, welcome. Um, thank you. Um, my question is about the new, uh, smart growth that's happening in our economy and it's the sharing econ- economy. You mentioned car sharing. Um, I just got back from vacation and, and used Airbnb to find a, a wonderful apartment in Amsterdam that probably the hotel business is not happy about. So my question is how is this sharing economy uh, moving into sort of the commercial world, the business world of uh, sharing workspaces, and uh, how is that sort of a scenario to help in sort of smart growth scenarios? Uh, you want me to start? Uh, look, I, I, I we see tenants. I touched on this a little bit before, changing the way they use space very dramatically. Uh, we moved Deloitte, um, which is a accounting consulting firm from 50 Fremont to 555 Mission, they went from 290,000 feet to 190,000 feet and didn't fire anybody, right? So the way that they're using space, the way that they're sharing space within their firm is, and, and they're a consulting firm, so not everybody shows up on every given day, so they're probably able to do that more than most of the rest of Fortune 500 Companies, but there is clearly a rethinking of how we use space. Um, gone are the law libraries. Gone are the filing cabinets. So there, there, there's there's stuff that you don't need anymore in the office environment. And then there's a willingness and an ability to share space in a way that we've never done before. And technology is hugely enabling in that regard. In terms of how you reserve that space internally, you can do that with a web app. Um, you can have something where you come in and click on a computer or put a card in and all of your personal files come up on the machine. Um, so the ability to use the space more efficiently is helping dramatically. And if part of the global warming problem relates to how many cars we're building, we're certainly building fewer office buildings because of that sharing. So I think that sharing economy is very positive on automobiles, and it's it's real in office buildings as well. Gabe Metcalf, the, the underlying principle there is access to uh, things, whether it's a, a, a power drill, uh, you, you don't need to own it, you need to have access to it, or access to a car, you don't need to own it. It's an access society, not an ownership society, and that really can affect cities in an interesting way. Yeah, I think the sharing economy is is a huge phenomenon. I actually think San Francisco is at the very epicenter of it. And uh, it'll be interesting to see how far it spreads. Car sharing only works in 
pretty high-density places. You need a lot of people aggregated to share the cars. But as the culture changes and people get used to it, the minimum necessary density is going down and down. But yeah, I think in general, this trend is helpful um, for reducing carbon. Um, uh, less building, less vehicles, less less stuff, because we're making more efficient use of it. And there is a model, uh, relay rides. There, there are some models out there for getting car sharing into less dense areas, suburbia, where a company doesn't own the cars, where they have to have them running a certain amount of the time. But relay rides, GM invested in relay rides, and there it's like someone in suburbia, you can lease out your third car, if you're willing to, and kind of get some revenue off it. And, and there you don't have to have quite the same density uh, you might have to drive to, to the house to get that car, but that, uh, that's another issue. Yes, sir, let's have our next it's, question. It's more, mission, it's more mission-specific in the suburbs, I think. You know, we've worked with Honda to do a share where we send people from their houses to Dublin BART, and then the Dublin BART people get off at there, drive to the offices, drive back, and then vice versa. I think in the suburbs it works on a mission-specific basis. And that's an area where somewhat people who uh, might share uh, service and time in, in an office park where they didn't used to do that before. Right, okay. yeah. Uh, yes, sir. Welcome. Uh, thank you. Uh, building on that last question, I'm just wondering, you know, to what extent uh, you, you see your business models and the nature of development is built on growth, and growth itself is the challenge. To what extent can we get from the idea of, you know, the tenants and customers of business to empowering people to to get more of their needs met? To you know, to you see yourselves as uh, providers, uh, helpers of people to empower themselves on the way. It's, it's, it's a more radical shift than the way you've been speaking of so far. But growth, yeah, gro- capitalism without growth. That's a often gets to that really big one. Who'd like to tackle that? I'm looking at the developers. Well, <laughs> <laughs> Carl Shannon. I, I'm not sure I follow the question completely, but it, you know, we we do as developers, we're we're, we're playing in that growth stream. But I think the idea that you somehow turn that off um, is a little bit like saying we're not going to build any more housing in San Francisco because it's already to the capacity. And all that does is push the problem elsewhere. I, I, I think that with the number of people that we've got on the planet, with what's going on at a worldwide level, to suggest that we should try and restrict growth in the United States, that somehow that is the way to solve the problem, I think ignores the problem rather than solves it. And I think what we need to do is find ways to channel that growth and accept change, and but put it into a physical format that is sustainable uh, in terms of transit and proximity rather than fighting it, because I think the history of anti-growth politics is simply to push the problem elsewhere. And we, we, Alex we, uh, we, uh, one of the things we're trying to do, I think we got a little bit excited about building office buildings at Bishop Branch because it was going so well, so we have you know, all these office buildings, but now we're really focused on converting it to a mixed-use community. So to your point about helping people, you know, we want to we bring, bring residences into the park so they can walk to work, so they can shop there making the lifestyle not just an office-centric lifestyle. I think, I think that will help people. I think that's smarter growth. And, you know, clearly we're not going to stop growing. 
but we want to, you know, we want to, we want to grow in a way that, that helps people live a better life. I think buried in the premise of that question was, though, that capitalism is premised on more, more, more for everyone, more people, uh, more GDP, that ultimately we're going to hit this carbon and other resource restrictions, that that is unsustainable to keep growing quarter by quarter. And if the rest of the world lives like everyone in this room does and uh, people listening on the radio, then we're in, Gabe Metcalf, we're in a really dark place. Very true. I don't know what to do about that. Yeah, right. I mean, no, no one does. And I've interviewed lots of people who've written books about this topic, et cetera. The idea of, of reeling in growth, it goes back to the Club of Rome. But a lot of what the Club of Rome said in the 70s is turning out to be true. Let's have our next question. Hi, Gary, Malaysian. All your comments were well put. Thank you. Uh, I'm born and raised in Fresno, Central Valley. And uh, I've spent half my life in Orange County. And now I'm living in San Francisco. Uh, what I've discovered is you, if you're taking care of a lawn, you're living in the past if you're not raising a family. So I think the people that are in the way, I don't think you need to build any more suburbs. I think you just need to get the empty nesters out of the suburbs into the downtowns where the action is, where they'll enliven themselves and let people that want to raise kids go out there and spend the extra money and drive the cars to raise their kids on lawns. And if, and it, but what they don't think about is those lawns are toxic because of all the chemicals that are put on them. So our whole cultural paradigm doesn't work. Now, how are you going to get that information out to the empty nesters so that they'll get off their butts and quit accumulating stuff and living in 30? I was living in 3,200 square feet. I'm down to 830. And it's the best thing ever happened to me. Now, how am I going to convince my peers who are totally brain dead? <laughs> I mean, the guys I went to school with in Fresno are the people. They're all Republicans and they're all hard headed. And there's no way to get information into those heads. How are you going to do that? That's oh, your yeah. problem. I, the empty nesters out of the empty out, out of suburbia into downtown and give them something to play with. As somebody who is, is building high-rise condominiums in San Francisco, um, while, while I don't think it is a sea change, the, the empty nester coming into the urban environment is a huge part of the market for building these high-rise condominiums in San Francisco. And we do see people giving up, particularly once their kids are gone, giving up that and coming back into the city. They they want to be able to go out uh, at night. They want the restaurants. They want the culture. They want the art institutions. Uh, I think you're seeing that. Um, I do think that Prop 13 works against that uh, in that you have people who are in a house where their tax base is protected to a point where it's difficult or challenging to do what you're talking about. Um, and we saw what you're talking about come to a virtual stop in 2009 and 2010, but it's come back again, and, and I think it is happening. You need to talk it up amongst your friends um, because there are opportunities in San Francisco. I think people are really seeing the benefits of living in an environment where they don't have to have their car, where they, where they can come to their apartment in an elevator, and they can use public transit to get to the cultural uh, institutions in the city. Anyone else? Anything else to add? Uh, let's have our next question. Yes, welcome. Hi, I'm Ellen Liu. 
Um, we hear about the, the, the desire to rebuild part of suburbia or infill development, but right now uh, many cities are struggling with new development, even on the Caltrain Corridor in Mountain View, Sunnyvale, whatever, that they still do redeveloping their single-story or two-story buildings to still service parking um, offices, or they have entitled house, housing that has higher-rise high development, and now they're coming back for, you know, lower density development, which is the same thing in the Tri-Valley area. So they're really struggling with it. So what's your view? Should they cave to the current conditions, market conditions, or should they stick to the points and let's build a better future, but a little later? All right. Okay, Metcalf. Ellen Liu, one of the longtime Spur board members who knows more about this question than anyone. But, uh, <laughs> you know, there's there's an interesting dynamic in the Bay Area, where if you think about the West Bay, Marin, San Francisco, San Mateo, Santa Clara counties, there is high demand, but low willingness to allow anything to be built. If you think about the East Bay, there is um, high willingness to allow things to be built, but low demand. And that is that is the dilemma, right? Oakland is uh, embracing of very high-density infill development, but the, there's not enough market demand to pay the rents. And then you have places, like Carl was talking about, Palo Alto, that, that, uh, where it's the opposite. So, so when you're a developer, you're looking for that overlap where the jurisdiction will zone for some real density, but also where the demand is high enough. And, um, and uh, for whatever reason... Um, San Francisco itself, which is normally, for the last 40 years, the, the chief NIMBY city of them all, allowed a, a bunch of things to be built. And that's that's all the, the construction we see around us. And that, there's a whole separate story about why that happened. I think we're seeing, we're seeing some of those all up and down the West Bay right now. But, uh, but this is hard, and I don't know the answer. I, I, I think the answer has to do with the... With the geography of the particular situation. Because in a downtown San Francisco where the transit is really rich and really works, you can afford the premium of the very high density format that you're talking about. We talked at the beginning a little bit about San Jose, where you've got downtown San Jose that's trying to emulate that high density program in close proximity to North 1st Street, which has the traditional surface parking lot. And that juxtaposition is close enough, and there isn't enough drivers in terms of the transit and what's really in downtown to provide the market demand to pay for that increment. The, the, the low-cost solution is too close and too easy. So where... Where the, where that's the case, you have to intervene as a municipality and help make that happen. So I think in downtown San Jose, you need help to make density happen. In San Francisco, density is happening despite the fact that we take the fees and do this with them, um, because the demand is there. So I think it has a lot to do with the particular situation you're talking about and how close that cheaper alternative is. And I, I think in the, in, in the suburbs, I think you, you, you know, this initiative that uh, 80% of new development has to be infill sites and has to be incorporated in the general plan, it's SB3-something. 
But, uh, you know, I, I think that the, the towns have to incorporate that into their general plan and, and complete an EIR so that developers can come in and, and, uh, and, 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 and latch on to that EIR and have an easy path towards, uh, towards high-density housing. And we, we just tried to entitle – we're trying to entitle a project in Livermore, and we started off with attached housing uh, and a general plan – going for a zoning change and a general plan amendment, and we got killed. Because uh, nobody, you know, nobody, there's, there's, there's no uh, uh, overall scheme. And so, you know, we, we are now in single-family homes. I think having that overall plan and the EIR really helps, helps uh, uh, grease the skids for new development. We've come to the end. Let's just have one last word in terms of uh, the one thing you'd like to leave us with to moving the Bay Area toward the kind of denser, lower carbon kind of development that we need to have to meet our carbon goals and be a resilient community. So let's go down. Carl and Gabe and Alex, one last thing. I, I think we sit in a very remarkable time. And I think what is going on, the vibrancy in the Bay Area economy and in this sort of tech renaissance gives us a window to uh, deal with some of these issues. I think we need to understand how precious that is. Good, Metcalf. We need to make big changes for the sake of future generations of humans. But the changes we need to make at this point will be beneficial to us. They will make the communities we live in better. They will make our lives better. Um, So the pressure to make radical changes is very real, but there is there really is no downside to doing it. Alex Mayor? You know, the... Urban, new urbanism is great, but there, there's a reason the suburbs exist, and uh, you know, we believe we need to find ways to create dense nodes in the suburbs that are transit-oriented to help uh, fix the long-term problem of sprawl. We have to end it there. Our guest today, Climate One, have been Alex Marin, General Manager of Bishop Ranch, Carl Sant- Shannon, Senior Managing Director of Tishman Spire, and Gabe Metcalf, Executive Director of Spur. I'm Greg Dalton. Thank you all for coming. <clears throat> Thank <laughs> you.